Hello and welcome to Obsession, where we get horribly obsessed, highly obsessed, <laughs> hilariously obsessed with things that other people might find odd. Nothing is too obscure, too creepy or too weird for us to research obsessively. I'm Heidi. And I'm Rebecca. Join us in being obsessed. <laughs> Hello, everyone. We hope that you are enjoying your quarantine. Well, if not enjoying your quarantine, at least surviving it. How are you, Becky? I am doing pretty well. I have actually gone from, they reckon there's a whole of different stages that people are going through with um, quarantine. Like there's, you're either going to come out of a, a chunk, a hunk, or a drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and I was very much in the chunk um I just sort of ate and watched a lot of Netflix. But the last few days, I've suddenly been bursting with energy and cleaning and excited and forward playing. So I'm, I'm in the good part of it now. What about you? What stage are you in? Well, um, I discovered a really good yoga YouTube channel. Yeah. Have you ever heard of Yoga with Adrienne? Is she the one with the really long nails? No, no, she's okay. got this lovely dog. Oh, and the dog why. comes that's... in and has a nap on the yoga mat. Yeah, that's why you watch it, isn't it? Yeah, pretty yeah, much. The dog, pretty yeah. much. But um, yeah, I've I've been really getting into the yoga again. Oh, good on you! And that's been that's been helping a lot. So you're going for the hunk part I'm of quarantine. I'm trying. I'm trying for the hunk, but whether or not I'll get there, I don't know. Well, we're hoping that everybody is keeping safe during the quarantine and finding interesting things to do. We normally, with our obsessions, sort of go a long back, a long way back into history, or it is also often um, an obsession which is long-standing for us. Mm. But this particular obsession, we can definitely say, is a quarantine obsession. Yes, because we were both introduced to this this week. And we have both pretty much spent every night obsessively um, looking into this story. And you might find that tonight's story has a particular resonance given the world's situation at the moment. Absolutely. So we're going to be telling the story of a woman who would is not only good at self-isolating, I would say she's <laughs> probably the world champion. I would say so. <laughs> I would say so. All right. So let's give a bit of backstory here. Okay. So let's start. Get comfortable. This is a long story. Yeah. So Heidi, in 2017, a heartfelt letter was received by a newspaper editor in Siberia. And part of it wrote, I am all alone. My years are big. My health is bad. I keep getting ill. There is a lump on my right breast and my strength is going. There is a need for a person, a helper, assuming there are kind people in the world, as the world has always had kind people. These words were painstakingly written by a devout woman called Agafia. 
in her 73rd year. What readers of this letter already knew about Agafia, who at this point was very well known, was that she had lived almost all of her life in an isolated region of the tiger in Siberia. And in her letter, she was pleading for someone to support her in her determination to not leave her impossible, difficult, isolated life. But how had she come to be in this situation? And what was her story? Agafia was in fact the last person living from her family, the Lykovs, who shot to infamy in 1978 when they were discovered after hiding for 40 years. Agafia first came to be known to the world when a geology team were flying over the very remote region of deepest Siberia. The valley walls were steep and the trees very dense. To their utter astonishment, they saw a tiny hut from their helicopter with even tinier crops around it. Not believing their eyes, they flew over the discovery several times to make sure. It was completely unexpected as this region was inaccessible wilderness and had never been known to host anything but bears and wild wolves. The team of geologists decided to make out on foot the incredible difficult journey to try and make contact with what they've seen from the air. They took with them many gifts for the strangers, but they also ensured that they carried a pistol, completely baffled as to who they would find there. The closer they hiked to the spot discovered in the helicopter, the more they began to see hints of human occupation. A path, some crops, and then finally a dwelling. It was a flimsy hovel of a hut created from blackened logs and it looked uninhabitable. Suddenly, a door of sorts was opened and a very old man in very tattered clothing hesitantly came out, looking frightened. The geologist spoke quickly to reassure him. They said, greetings, grandfather. We have come to visit. He was silent a few moments before replying, well, as you have come this far, you may as well come in. The geologist entered and discovered what was not much more than a burrow. And inside this burrow, they discovered two more younger men, the old man's sons and two adult daughters, one of which was Agafia. All of this little family were abjectly terrified and the women cried out, this is for our sins, for our sins. The geologists were dismayed to be causing this little family so much distress that they quickly left the hut. They set themselves up a small camp a little distance from the, from the hut and started to set out some food to eat. About half an hour into their meal, the father and his two daughters began to wander out of their home, obviously frightened, yet cautiously curious about their visitors. The team of geologists offered their meal to the family, but all was refused with the reply of, we are not allowed that. 
the girls had a strange way of speaking and Agafia in particular spoke in a sing-song manner, stringing words together in a way that initially led the geologists to believe that Agafia was mentally deficient. They later found out that she most certainly was not. Oh, no. When asked if they had ever seen bread, the old man said that he had, but his daughters had not. It became quickly understood by the geologists that they were the first other humans that the father had seen for over 40 years. But to these four adult children, all aged between 32 and 50, they were the only other humans they had seen in their entire lives. Can you imagine what it would have felt like for both of these parties? They would have been like aliens. Well, yeah. Yeah. Incredible. You can see why um, the girls, you know, thought felt like it was some kind of punishment from God. Oh, yeah. Uh, very much. Oh. I can't, I can't even imagine. I would love to be on that hill to witness such a thing. I and know. To me, at this point, the geologists, despite being a little bit, you know, sort of cautious and taking the pistol with them, right? Understand? Yeah. So they actually seem to approach very respectfully. And, they, and when the family were hysterical inside, they did immediately remove themselves. So I get the impression that there's some level of decency from these Oh, geologists. yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think the geologists probably probably acted for the best at all times I, here. I do too. I do too. Yeah. Well, the geologists camped close to the site and over several visits with a family, they came to learn a little more of their story. A story which began in nineteen thirty six. The father was revealed to be Karp Lykov born in 1901. He was what is known as an old believer, an extreme and very old sect of the Orthodox Russian Christian Church. The old believers had been persecuted since the 17th century when they broke apart from the traditional church in a moment known as the Raskol, the cleaving apart. Members of the old believers were tortured and executed frequently were forced at times to pay double taxation as members of the cult and also an extra tax for wearing a beard. They were seen as a threat to the Russian state and treated mercilessly for their traditional beliefs. By the time that Karp was a young child, the old believers were permitted some better conditions. They were allowed to build churches and worship, but many discriminations remained and many of the old believers who had already fled into Siberia in an attempt to escape the persecution fled deeper and deeper. By 1917, when the Bolsheviks came into power, this sect retreated further into the Siberian wilderness. With each generation, the need to disconnect became greater and greater. By the 1930s, purges were regular of all Christians, but particularly the old believers. One day in 1936, on the outskirts of their remote village, 
Karp and his brother were kneeling, working, when a communist patrol came by and shot and killed his brother. In utter terror and desperation, Karp gathered his wife, Akulina, his nine-year-old son, Savin, and his infant daughter, Natalia, and fled deep into the forest. They took with them very few supplies, some seeds, some cooking pots, but mostly they took 17th century books and other sacred items from their religion. Through the coming years, they moved from location to location, each time traveling deeper and deeper into uninhabited tiger regions, further and further from any kind of other society. In 1940, they had another son, Dimitri, and in 1944, Agafia, the subject of our podcast, was conceived in this isolation and then born in a wooden tub of water, her father standing anxiously watching her being birthed and plucking her from the water. He baptised her himself and made himself not only her father, but her godfather. Growing up, all that Agafia knew of other humans came from her parents or from stories from the Bible. She studied the 17th century Bible and prayer books under the instruction of her mother, who would sharpen sticks to be dipped in honeysuckle juice as writing implements for Agafia. She learned about other countries and other societies, but they were abstract notions to her. All that she would know was the isolation of the deepest part of Siberia and her only companions, her brothers and sister. She helped to secure the family's food supply. They planted small crops of things like rye, carrots, peas and potatoes, and fashioned clothing for themselves, woven from hemp they had grown. Shoes they created from the bark of trees. They were completely self-sufficient. No shops to get supplies from or friends to help. They lived a very deprived life surviving completely and entirely off the land. There was a stream close by which provided them with water and abundant berries to eat, but their primary source of sustenance were pine nuts, which fell like manna from heaven all around them and the mushrooms that would grow underfoot. Initially, they cooked their meals But as pots started to rust away, their food became simpler, consisting of what could be baked on an open fire. You know, every time I read about Agafia and how she lives her life and how the family live their lives, I keep thinking about all those YouTube videos of people who claim to be Uh (laughs) self-sufficient. You're kidding yourself. You're completely kidding yourself. And and you know I have these little self-sufficient fantasies. But the reality is very, very different. And it seemed like when they fled, he he did not only take his um, textbooks with him, but um, he he did take good supplies. He he planned, he, he, you know, considering he was fleeing in a rush and panic-stricken and probably in quite uh, deep trauma, he he took some good stuff with him, but still... they, they truly are living off the land. 
They are. And I remember in one documentary, Agafia was talking about how their plates had holes in them. Yeah. And they couldn't eat off plates anymore. Yeah. And that's what happened. I mean, initially they were cooking um, mm. their meals. They'd cook up the rye and they'd make mm. up what they need. But it got to the point where um, their cooking pots rusted so and, and they couldn't use, yeah. like, the pine bark to cook on an open fire. So they were literally cooking on, like, rocks and, and tr- yeah. true deep castaway self-sufficiency. Yeah. Unbelievable. It is. Well, in her early teens, her older brother, Dimitri, taught himself how to hunt. He would run barefoot through the snowy forests and chase down rabbits and set holes in the ground as traps to catch elks. And when successful, the family would have a good sustenance for a few days. Nevertheless, hunger and extreme food insecurity was a familiar presence in Agafia's teenage years. The winter of her 17th year was particularly tragic for the family. Animals had devastated their tiny crops, leaving them with almost nothing to eat. Their mother, Aquilina, refused to eat, ensuring that all of the meagre supplies that they did have would be given to her four children. In 1961, she died of starvation, the very first of their small family to die. Agafia was motherless and the family devastated, both emotionally and also devastated not having any resources. It was considered a miracle in the family what was to happen next. They found a single grain of rye had survived and had sprouted a small shoot. Night and day they guarded it and from this single harvested 80 more seeds. Wow. These in turn were planted and in time they managed to restore the ability to grow and harvest rye. Incredible. Her brother, Savin, was 13 years older than Agafia and grew to become a formidable character, very forceful and pious, and in such a manner that her father became very concerned about what would happen to the young women when he died if Savin became head of the family. Mm. He also became very concerned about the potential for incest. So he sent his sons away to live in a hut some distance away in order to keep his daughters safe. Agathia was 36 when she first encountered other humans. The geologist who had discovered them and her response was a mixture of fear and great curiosity. The geologist soon discovered that her sing-song way of talking did not indicate intellectual difficulties, was in fact a charming quirk of a highly intelligent and humorous woman. It also reflected the teaching material that she had, which was 17th century texts, which were read in a mm-hmm. sing-song manner. Yeah. She had a wonderful sense of humour and an ability to poke fun at others and herself. She was understandably frightened at first at all the geologists, but was equally fascinated and approached eagerly to learn more about them 
and all the while firmly maintaining her own ways, something that she still does to this day. When the geologists invited the family to view their television set, she stood nervously in the doorway of the hut, peering and fascinated while at the same time whispering prayers and crossing herself furiously. The television is devilish. It's a devilish I thing. Know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, what I love about Agape is that's all devilish and I really want to see all this devilish stuff, but I'm still going to cross myself and I know it's wrong. I'm not yes. going to partake but I'm sure as hell going to witness it and, and explore this. She, she's, she seems really, really, really charming. I, I know. Yeah. I know. And I believe that uh, what she was watching on TV was actually some, um, oh. like, Cossack dancing and traditional Russian singing. Oh. And was she was it like, really? oh, this dancing. She doesn't <laughs> like dancing. Dancing is... That's his devilish, but... I'll watch it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, she's adorable. The whole family explored what the geologists had to show them from the outside world. But they would initially accept no gifts aside from salt. Hmm. Over the coming year, they did accept some new cooking pots and some cutlery, but they kept the wall of their simple self-sufficiency up strongly against Mm. the modernity that they knew of only in theory. It is clear that the geologists were so very kind and respectful of this family. They mindfully allowed the family to approach them after the first heartbreaking encounter. Trust. Mm, They did. They helped with the crops, but tried hard not to overstep the boundary. So it devastated them that just a year later, that their well-meant intrusion led to disaster and oh, no. misery for the family. Yeah. In the autumn of 1981, the two sons, Dimitri and Savin, fell ill as did Natalia. And shortly, all three of Agafi's siblings died. The geologists did everything that they could to save them, begging Savin to get into a helicopter to be taken to a hospital, but he adamantly refused, believing that it was the will of God for him to die at that point. Suddenly, Agafia and her father were the only ones left in their little isolated family. And despite the overwhelming grief of the geologists, knowing that they had potentially brought the disease and death, she was pragmatic and understanding. She will assert often and still with confidence that they would have all perished of starvation if the geologists hadn't arrived in any case. The years of malnourishment had worn down their bodies and it was inevitable. She remained forgiving and welcoming of these people always. Poor Agafia. Yeah. Terrible. Imagine that. Imagine having to bury family member after family well, member. Well, it is terribly sad. And if you um, listeners want to go online and watch some of the YouTube videos, you can actually see the little tiny cemetery that's up there. And um, 
with, with a very lovingly crafted traditional uh, Russian Orthodox Christian crosses on them. And it's really quite poignant and, and sad to imagine uh, seeing your own little civilization slowly dwindle and be buried. And yet neither Agafia or her father were ever tempted to live any other way. Yeah. I, Even after that. Yeah. Do you think that came from a religious uh, piety or just what they were accustomed to or a fear uh, given the previous discrimination, you know, the father had experienced? What, why was that? It's probably a combination of all of those things. And I think they had gotten extremely comfortable with living in the past. I mean, mm -hmm. the father used to talk about world events that that happened in 1900. <laughs> and he, he'd speak about it as though it was happening right yeah, now. Yeah. You know, would you believe this? And, and would you believe this political situation? Yeah. And... I just think they built this cocoon of the past around themselves and they were just very warm in that cocoon. Yeah. Well, I guess everybody gets used to their own situation, whatever it is. And I mean, I mean, like you think that your life is ideal. Well, maybe not, but your life is comfortable as it is. And someone might, you know, arrive on your doorstep and say, no, Heidi, you can have this and that and this and that, but it's not what you know. you no, you, you're quite comfortable with what you know, even though to us it seems quite degraded, you know. And another thing is I think that the wilderness of the Siberian wilderness, it's just so incredibly beautiful. I think, I think in a way they felt nourished by this environment even though it is a very, very harsh environment, I think that they they felt its beauty and I think... And its protection. And its protection. Mm. And I think they had become such a part of that land and that land had become such a part of them that mm. it just felt impossible yeah. to leave. Yeah, I, I can imagine that. I really can. Yeah, and, and I mean, they're not the only family in history to, to be in this situation. No, they're not. Uh, they're probably the one we no, know most I, about, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I remember, um, you know, just a few days ago when you, you mentioned this name, Agafia, and I did a quick Google search and I went, wait a minute, this story is really familiar because I did study drama and uh, one of the playwrights uh, that I studied in a lot of detail was Louis Nara, an Australian playwright. And as I was reading the story of Agafia, I was going, wait a minute, this is the plot of Louis Nara's play, The Golden Age. Oh, okay. And I thought, wait a minute, but this is the golden age, except it's set in Siberia instead of Tasmania. Right. So is the golden age a fictional um, play or is it based on some historical? It's based, it's based on a true story. Wow. It's based on a wild family that was found in Tasmania. Wow. Um, in the 1920s. 
And the story is so similar. Very interesting. It makes you wonder um, right now as we sit here and talk, is there another family that have not been discovered somewhere living in some remote region away from civilization? Probably. Uh, most definitely there would be. And what was really interesting is that the family in the Golden Age and uh, the Lykov family both had developed a language. And they uh. developed this language that was... Uh, sort of regency in, in, in the play, The Golden Age, the, the family had developed a language that was, you know, part regency English, part Victorian era English, biblical. Wow. And the Lykov family had a language that was from these 16th century texts yeah. and the Bible and early 1900s Russian. Yeah. And it, it's just incredibly interesting. It is. It really, really is. Um, I have really enjoyed obsessing over Agafia this week and there is more, obviously. A lot more. A lot more to Agafia's story that we've decided that we might do this one as a two-parter. Hmm. Yeah. So. There are more people to meet yet and more experiences for Agafia. And her life gets a lot deeper a lot more interesting and there are so many incredible mysteries surrounding her world that we thought we might talk about it a bit more next week. Yeah, and there's also another perspective that we're going to particularly enjoy getting our teeth into. Yeah. And we have a few opinions. A lot of opinions. <laughs> As yeah. we tend to always have. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thank you for listening to our part one of Agafia's story. Now, I have heard the lovely lady uh, sing her prayers. Have you heard that, Heidi? Definitely. She does it quite a lot. She does, and it's very, very beautiful. So we shall leave you with Agafia singing, and we'll see you next week. See you next week, guys. Yeah, I'm